What is up, y'all? My name is Kristen. My name is Sarah. And welcome to the Red Rum and Red Wine Podcast. And we are hopefully back to our regular scheduled programming as of this week. No promises, though. (laughs) (laughs) We, for all of our uh, newer followers, we try to post every Wednesday and Friday. Has not been happening since Sarah has been in town. It has been surprisingly harder to record. Yeah, it's weird how recording virtually seems easier for us, but also... I'm in town, like, not relaxing. I'm doing family stuff, so that does have play into it. But we are trying our best. But yeah, usually Wednesday, Fridays. So we are slowly getting there, I think. Yeah, again, no promises. Yeah, no promises. We live life on the edge. Dangling my feet, baby. Jumping off most days. Some days Fall, <laughs> falling off mistakes, okay? <laughs> a lot of, you know, we're just going with the flow, going with the punches. But yeah, this is, you don't want to hear about our problems, our life woes. You want to hear about the true crime that is Sarah's case. So yes. What are you talking about today? Today, I am going to be talking about the murders at the Glensheen Mansion located in Duluth, Minnesota. So the Glensheen Mansion is located at 3300 London Road in Duluth, and that is perched up on the shore of Lake Superior. Prime real estate, if I may say so myself, Kristen, just take a peek at these photos of this lovely mansion. Oh, you know, I've always wanted to live on a lake. Um... That's not exactly how I imagined my house to look. It's definitely more grandiose, but mm-hmm. I would be content. I would be very content. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very suitable. <laughs> I, I don't know who would complain living in that. Maybe um, if you had to clean it by yourself. But... Right. If you, didn't have, if you didn't have the proper staff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The Glensheen Mansion is the most visited historic home in Minnesota, and it's one of Minnesota's oldest homes built along the Lake Superior shore. It is a 39-room mansion on 12 acres, so obviously we'll be posting photos as the ones, you know, I just showed Kristen, so you'll see what a beautiful home this is. It is definitely an estate. (laughs) It was built with the, you know, 20th 20th century craftsmanship, and that just adds to the historical element of the home, obviously. Not, I mean, now it does, not back in the day. Like, back in the day, it was, like, for its time. But anyways, husband and wife Chester and Clara Congdon built Glensheen with the intent of it being their home and paradise for them and their six children. So, they did the damn thing, let me just say. The Congdon family was well-known and influential in Duluth and as well as the surrounding areas because they opened up an iron mining company or iron mining in the region. And this 
just brought in fucking money, dude. Like, bukus of dollies. I meant to say money. (laughs) I was about to say, I mean. I meant to say monies. And I combined dollars and monies. Anyways. Gruel. Not only were they well known and did they make a bunch of money from the iron mining, but they also set aside some of their privately bought land to be used for public use. For example, um, some of their land was used for the North Shore Scenic Highway, Congdon Park, and Scenic Highway 61. They definitely got a nice little dollar out of that. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a big tax write-off oh or something. Oh, my God. Something. You know it. Yeah. I hate, like, the When more... you own, like, half the town. <laughs> it's like, what's the point? Why do people that spend that much money need that much of a fucking write-off or break? Like, give it to me. I'm poor. <laughs> <laughs> Help me, I'm poor. <laughs> Chester Congdon had been a part of the city's early leaders who helped shape the city of Duluth as well as that region. Street, you know, aside from the land he put aside to be used for public use, he also had various things named after him. Streets and things. So, mm-hmm. of course. Congdon Boulevard, Congdon Park, the Congdon Park neighborhood, and Congdon Park Elementary School. Damn. You know you made it when you have a school named after after you, like... Like, the no, literally the whole entire town named yeah, after you. Yeah, like, the school's named after you, the neighborhood that the school is in is named after you, and the street that everything is on is named after you. It's pretty sick, not gonna lie. So they were well-known and influential and had money, to say the least. Mm. So Chester and Clara Congdon started construction on Glensheen Mansion in 1905. The land they purchased for the mansion was originally 22 acres. As I mentioned, it's on 12. So I'm not sure. I mean, I assume some of that land was some of the land that maybe they donated for public use. Mm -hmm. And that's why it went down to 12. Um, Or maybe they sold some of it. Who knows? Um, I didn't get details, but, you know, it went from 22 to 12. Plans for their, um, you know, original plans for their estate included making it super self-efficient, which is really cool. I do enjoy that. Yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, obviously for the time it, it might seem normal, but for a super upper class family, it may not seem, I mean... Of course, they had staff, and they probably wanted their kitchen staff to have fresh vegetables. <laughs> but it's a cool idea, regardless. Well, you know, I was, or like TikTok was teaching me the other day that <laughs> um, lawns were a thing of like wealth, I guess, in the past. Like, if you didn't need to grow your own produce, like having a lawn was it. And so I guess that's how lawns were standardized. I may be totally wrong. Like, I totally need to do research on it, but... Well, that makes sense because, like, that's how lawn games and things came of sorts. Yeah. Like, um... What is the one? Not oh, uh... uh cro- cro- I want to say crochet, but it's not it's croquet. 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 No, it's Yes, not. Is it, it is croquet. Crockett. No, it's... <laughs> it looks like Crockett on paper, but it's croquet. Okay, yeah. Their plans for self-sufficiency included, you know, not just a garden, but, of, you know, of course, a vegetable garden, but also an orchard, 
a greenhouse, a water reservoir, and a cow barn. Okay, yeah, that's not something that everybody uh, Yeah, has. it's like everything. <laughs> um, and I think you can see some of that in the photos I showed you. Like, you could see maybe the greenhouse yeah, and stuff. Yeah, there's the local farmer's market right there. After three years and nine months, the Congdens finished their dream home, paradise, mansion, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this was in 1908. As I mentioned, 39 rooms, which was 27,000 square feet of living space. Okay, so Kristen, guess how much this cost them to build? When was it? Ni- early 1900s? It was finished in 1908, and it started construction in, well, um, <clears throat> uh, 1905. Okay. I'd if say... If that math is right, whatever around a million if I had to guess I'd say under roughly like under a million and you talk so much shit about you being good at numbers and stuff and you hate like accounting and whatever I don't know why but you are exactly correct I mean I do know why obviously no I think it's because lately I've been like doing a lot of converting oh (laughs) yay if you were to ask me probably in like what it is today you're like I've been doing a lot of converting (laughs) I I go on the internet I have a calculator no I think um if you were to ask me what it was today I would literally have no idea I would say like uh like 30 well your guesses are very well done I'd say they are very accurate, educated guesses because in at that time, in the early 1900s, it cost them $854,000 to build. Oh, nice. That's a lot of money even for today. I mean, we see people building million-dollar homes all the time, yeah. but still, that's a lot of money. Well, back then, it and for the area is what I'm thinking because... Um, this is like uh, something with an M that not a lot of people live in. What did you Minnesota? say? Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. No one lives in Minnesota. So if this were in New York or like the Hamptons or whatever, this would be way more. But for this and kind of house in that area. it is on a more well-known part of Minnesota, the Lake Superior. It's on lake property. So. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, cool. drum, ro- cool. drum roll, please. The conversion for the $854,000 that they spent. Um, Unfortunately, online, I could only go as far back as 1915 to convert to today's value, but it should be semi-close. So the conversion in today's monies is... (laughs) Twenty five million four hundred and seventy one thousand five hundred and eight dollars and fifty seven cents. I need to be on the prices right. You do. Mm-hmm. Even though it's like so different, but get that iron mining money, honey. That was where it was at, apparently. If only I could have told my ancestors. Well, it was taken from your ancestors, technically, so. Technically. (laughs) The land has always been ours, and y'all stole it. The Congdens seemed to be very happy with their new paradise. Clara Congdon would write in her diary, quote, I will have quiet neighbors, end quote, referring to the cemetery to the west of Glensheen. (laughs) Sorry, I just, I had to include that. I loved it. She seemed very, um... 
like grounded I think and she was just very aware and like that that literal five word sentence or little excerpt is poetry to me so did she like was the graveyard there when she bought the land or she just made her own DIY graveyard (laughs) (laughs) DIY graveyard let me kill some people um so it it says referring to the cemetery to the west of Glensheen. I think it was a cemetery to the west of their property. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe eventually they do build their own family cemetery on the property. Okay. But don't quote me on that. Either way, it was filled Either with bodies way. and they were dead. Either way, she thought they were great neighbors. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so... As I said, I assume the Congdon family lived happily ever after. Um, this, this you know, story isn't really about the building and and living in the whole Glensheen Mansion thing for the Congdons. Um, so Chester Congdon does unfortunately pass away at the age of sixty three, and Glensheen Mansion would not be the same kind of after that. You know, he is the he was the man, you know, him and Clara built the place. He was the man of the house, of the estate, of the of the businesses, of their dealings they did. He was the dude. And so after he passed away, shit just wasn't the same. And uh, this just like touches my heart. Clara would wear black for years after Chester's passing mourn me the way clara mourns her husband like i mourn me that's why i'll never get married i like i want a minimum minimum three years my husband is crying so depressed so depressed doesn't loses know, weight doesn't know loses how he's his job move on with life friends come to him are you okay goes let's, bankrupt let's get you some help <laughs> life ruined like homeless for like a year and a half i will haunt you want, you need to be so depressed otherwise <laughs> i'm like it wasn't worth it to me right like no. why did i get married why, what was the point of me dying before you bitch? like you better hear this Okay. If, if you are going to hear any part, it is this one. I will copy and copy paste to send it to you. No, I already told Blake and I have had this conversation. He said that he would never get over it and he would never remarry. And I already told him I would haunt the fuck out of him no I'm, matter what. I will watch you for three years. And if you break that vow, I will stay there forever. And after those three years, if you don't do anything, I'll leave you alone and you can do whatever the fuck you want. That's the yeah, deal. three years seems good. It's Maybe good. seven. Yeah. Maybe 20. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I'm going to write that in my vows. After Chester's death and as the years go by, him and Clara's six children would all be grown and out of the house, most of them married and, you know, living their own lives. Um, but eventually, as Clara got older, more elderly and sickly a little bit, I'm pretty sure Elizabeth was the youngest out of the six. I couldn't get a confirmation, but we do find out later, like, she outlives everyone anyways. So, Elizabeth, if not the youngest, one of the younger out of the six children, ends up dropping out of college to move back home to the Glensheen Mansion to live 
with her mother Clara and to take care of her. While some of the other family members, you know, siblings and other family members would take charge of like business affairs, Clara and Elizabeth would take care of the estate. So they would be in charge basically of Glensheen and running it. Elizabeth never married, although she did. So Elizabeth does become a main character, by the way. That's, oh, okay. uh, that's why I'm kind of diving into her, if you haven't noticed. Elizabeth never married, but she did end up adopting two infant daughters in the 1930s. Um, I'm not sure if it was at the same time or what. I couldn't get exact dates. But anyways, they would be raised at Glenshain with their mother and grandmother, Clara. So can't complain with a life like that. I know. like they And they remained there until Clara ultimately passed away in 1950. So, I mean, growing up on that kind of estate, shit... Who knows? I mean, people, all families have their troubles, mm-hmm. but, and, and we'll actually see that throughout the story. <laughs> That's yeah. the point. I know. I'm sitting there thinking like. I'm like, actually, no, it, it clearly wasn't that great. something was off, but just saying. Because would, you will see. It, it, it would just be so much harder to have a bad time at that house. Right. And like, I could just go walk to the lake and like. Yeah. my problems away. Yeah, even if you weren't happy at home, like, at least you have a lake to escape to or some woods. Yeah, I'm bored in my room. I have 38 or other rooms I could You have 12 acres. <laughs> yeah, I could go literally across the, the fuck over there. You can go there. to the West Wing, okay? Yeah, and fuck right on <laughs> off. Like, you're good. Oh, geez. The things I would do with a 39-room mansion on 12 acres, okay? Your your emotions are valid, though. They're totally valid. Yeah, I guess. Until they aren't. As I maybe mentioned, Elizabeth Congdon would outlive all of her siblings, and that's why I kind of assumed she was the youngest, but that doesn't always mean you outlive your siblings, so. But I think she was. Anyways. She remained at Glensheen after her mother Clara's passing because she was probably still head of the estate or dealing with the estate affairs. And she was, you know, her being the last living out of the six children, this made her the last living child of Chester and Clara Congdon, also making her like the heiress of their fortune. As was her father and mother and family name, Elizabeth Congdon was well known and respected in the community, not only because of her family name, but because of her own charitable work, and she was apparently really passionate about that, and that's always very nice. Yeah, that's always great. Yeah. The Congdon name had been well known by Duluthians. Until, unfortunately, a tragic event in 1977 would kind of tarnish their name as well as the Glensheen Mansion's name and reputation. At 83 years old, with her daughters, her adoptive daughters, um, now adults and out of the house, Elizabeth Congdon was living out her days at Glensheen with the help of her staff, um, which was like kitchen maids, nurse, and nursing staff, because she was very elderly. Fucking 83. Especially, I'm like, okay, they did live to be that age back in the day. That's, like, kind of a myth or whatever, but damn. Yeah, well, and I did, I think, um, I read something about her being 
especially ill, like she had suffered something that made her not completely bedridden, but pretty constricted in her movement or Mm. mobility. So um, she really did need those nurses. So So comes the tragic day. So on the early morning hours of June 27th, 1977, just before 7 a.m., Nurse Mildred Garvu, Garvois, Garvoy, arrived at, I'm going to call her Mildred. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nurse Mildred arrived at Glensheen to start her shift, her 11 to 7 p.m. shift, or I'm sorry, 7 to 11, I think, shift, caring for elderly heiress Elizabeth Congdon. Nurse Mildred entered through the front door as she always would, but this morning she was very surprised to find it unlocked because it normally would not be unlocked. Mm. She made her way, she kind of like, you know, thought it was strange, but brushed it off, didn't think much of it. She made her way to the kitchen to say hello, good morning to the chef or kitchen staff, as I think she probably usually did. And then after that, she would make her way up the main staircase, the grand staircase, as they call it. As she made her way up the stairs, she would see the night nurse that she was replacing. And this was nurse Velma Pitia. 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 Nurse Velma. She saw Nurse Velma sitting up on one of the landings. Um, The staircase, I think, you know, it went up, I think, like about three floors. But on the first landing, on a window seat, she noticed Nurse Velma kind of sitting there, slumped over. And she, she was like, why is Nurse Velma taking a nap right there? That's really weird. And as Nurse Mildred approached closer she would see nurse velma laying there completely bloodied and bludgeoned to death oh my god terrified nurse mildred rushes over to elizabeth's room which is down the hall to find her deceased in bed with a satin pillow of her own obviously covering her face Elizabeth's bedroom was a mess. Things, you know, there's pillows, other pillows thrown about. There's jewelry strewn about. It was, you know, disheveled as fuck. Mildred then rushed downstairs and called the police. I have a picture here of police and uh, one of the victims. We don't know who being carried out in a body bag. (laughs) I don't know if that's, like, morbid, but... um, that's at the Glensheen Mansion, obviously. God, I'm like, even this morbid-ass picture of that house looks And, like, the really 70-ass nice. fucking cars and the flowers. Oh I know, it's God. like, it's a nice picture. It's lush, yeah. <laughs> it's if, a lush photo. If that wasn't, like, a body bag right yeah, there, that would be... And it almost looks like it's, like, a funeral arrangement it already does. set up, like, with that plan. Like, going in. Like, oh it's like... Gosh. Ugh. It literally looks like the entrance yeah. of a church. That house is freaking grandiose. Quandois. 
Not to be insensitive. That's just like, <laughs> I'm really, we're really not trying to be dicks. Just like, wow, that's a nice house. Just like, wow. Amazing. Even with a body bag out front. Like, Sorry, we're, we speak poor. We, <laughs> that's out of our tax bracket. Signs would definitely point to an intruder. Apparently, there was a broken window in the basement level or lower level of the Glenshine Mansion. And so it appeared that the intruder would break the window and enter through the basement or lower level. They would then make their way up through the main or grand staircase of the home where they would probably unexpectedly unexpectedly encounter Nurse Velma Petia. As I mentioned, she was on her 11 to 7 a.m. shift, 11 p.m., 7 a.m., And you know what's extra sad is that Nurse Velma was actually not supposed to be working that night. She had previously retired and agreed to work that night, just like a one-time thing to cover for somebody. I wonder how that person felt. Oh, God. Survivor's guilt as fuck. Yeah. A nylon stocking was wrapped around one of Nurse Velma's wrists suggesting that the intruder had maybe tried to tie her up. It was clear that she fought back, um, but unfortunately she was beaten viciously to her death. So viciously, specifically, in fact, it was 23 blows to the head with a candlestick. Oh my god. After encountering and murdering Nurse Velma, it's suspected that the intruder made their way into the nurse's room and, like, cleaned up and maybe, like, took a few things, who knows. But basically, they cleaned up, straightened up, and then this was across the hall from Elizabeth's room. So then they would go over to Elizabeth's room They took a small wicker suitcase from Elizabeth's room, filled it with jewelry, including the watch and ring that Elizabeth was wearing. And I'm sure they did this after they smothered Elizabeth Condon with one of her own satin pillows. The maid and cook who lived at another end of the house, you know, like the other wing probably, didn't hear a thing. But what's weird is that the cook's dog started barking at around 2.50 a.m. the night of the murders and stayed very agitated and unsettled for about two hours. I think that's what's been tripping me up this whole time because you have been saying that other people were inside the house while these two people were viciously murdered. So, oh my God, just to think that if, they just decided to check and see what was going on or if someone was just at the wrong place at the wrong time like goose e bumps yeah i mean and it's a little bit of both like nurse velma wrong place wrong time she wasn't even supposed to be there homegirl retired and then what if what if the cook got up to check on things like you never know if my dog was barking for two hours you bet your bottom dollar i would have gotten i'd be like damn he he probably needs to diarrhea or something or like like, at least like i'm gonna see whatever (laughs) the fuck is up because he needs to shut up so i can go to bed i've got to cook in the morning yeah damn nurse velma's wristwatch 
interestingly stopped at 2.40 a.m., which is, like, highly suggested could be the possible time of death because you could assume her watch broke when she got beaten and that's when she died, so... The intruder, the murderous intruder, I should say, left through the front door, leaving it unlocked behind them, and drove to the Minneapolis-St. Inter- Saint Paul International Airport in Nurse Velma's car. At the airport a few hours later, car keys that had a, ring, a key ring with Velma's name on it were found in a trash can. And I'm not sure... I assume they were found as a part of the investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just like a random Yeah, someone ran them. was like, oh, there's keys. Yeah. A parking lot ticket stamped 6.35 a.m. for that day was also fa- found in the trash can, kind of near the keys. And um, for whatever reason, they connected it to the case and to the car keys and thought it was important. So the police did make a public statement um, pretty quickly into their investigation about their case. And the statement was that the double homicide occurred during a botched burglary. And um, But what's interesting is that one thing they didn't share with the public was that they kind of already had a lead or a main suspect that they were interested in. Damn. Yeah. They wanted to kind of give it off to the public as a botched burglary by a stranger. And so, but they, they, they like they very something. quickly kind of knew like... maybe who did it. So. Okay. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Investigators were very quick to suspect one of Elizabeth's adoptive daughters, Marjorie Cottle. <laughs> Sorry. Mess up her name. She deserves it. (laughs) Marjorie Caldwell. Marjorie had... Marjorie? Marge? Marge? No, we can't disrespect Marge Simpson like that. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Marge. Marjorie had married a man named Roger Caldwell in 1967. Mm. And shortly after they got married, they occurred a very heavy debt. This resulted in furniture and vehicles being repossessed. And I don't know about their living situation. If wherever they lived got repossessed as well. Because we'll find out in the remainder of this case or this story. They're living in hotels. So, um, basically, I read that Marjorie liked to spend money. And, um, Roger had some maybe habits that didn't help as well, so. It's the damn lakeside view. It's those darn views, man. It gets to you, man. You see that view, you want it for the rest of your life, and you'll do anything to obtain it. I do the same. That's why God made me poor. (laughs) (laughs) Marjorie, being Elizabeth's heir, who was the heiress to the Congdon family fortune, 
was set to inherit millions after Elizabeth died. And I'm not just talking about a few or a handful of millions of dollars. Um, I'm talking about around $8.2 million. And again, that is in 1905 monies or in 1977 monies or whatever. Damn. Sorry. Yeah. Still. Still. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. I mean, I would be happy with that in today's I would be happy with literally a portion. Yeah. Investigators could totally see this crime being a way to speed up Marjorie's inheritance. And obviously, this would be a major motive. Now, it's just time for them to dig a little deeper and connect the dots. At the time of the murders, Marjorie and Roger Caldwell were living in a hotel in Golden, Colorado, which is in the Denver area. I know because I was just there um, at a Red Rocks concert for Glass Animals, I Love You. But at the time of the murders, Roger hadn't been seen apparently coming in or out of his hotel room, but Marjorie had been seen. The day after Elizabeth's murder, which was on June 27th, 1977, Roger is seen in Golden, Colorado, opening up a safe deposit box in a bank with injuries that he didn't have two days ago. Alrighty. Alrighty, Roonies. Aside from the injuries, Roger was said to be agitated and disheveled. Um, Apparently, in his appearance, his hair was a mess. He just, like, looked very disheveled. His injuries consisted of a few cuts on his face as well as, like, a really swollen hand. So, it was, like, pretty obvious. (laughs) And so, with a search warrant, police were pretty much watching them and, you know... They were on to them, basically. Waiting for the right one. Yeah, so with a search warrant, of course, police would find a notarized letter from Marjorie Caldwell in the safe deposit box. So they got a search warrant to search the box. Mm-hmm. And in it, I don't know if there was anything else or if it was just the letter, but from what I read, what they found was this letter from Marjorie it had been signed from Marjorie Caldwell three days before the murders of Nurse Velma and Elizabeth. The letter basically was a handwritten statement um, and almost kind of like a, not a will, but a statement giving Roger, her husband, a $2.5 million cut of Marjorie's inheritance <laughs> upon the death of her mother. I do have a picture of the letter here, Kristen. Um, I won't read it because it's pretty long. Maybe we'll post it for you guys. But as you can see, it's just a handwritten statement signed and dated by Marjorie Caldwell. Marjorie Congdon Caldwell. Mm. So basically the date of this letter, three days before her mother's death, is very suspicious. And it's... it's, a red flag. On June 30th, 1977, which was three days after the murders, family and friends come to Duluth for um, Elizabeth's funeral. And this obviously includes Marjorie and Roger Caldwell. So they come down from Colorado and they're staying at the downtown Radisson Hotel in Duluth. After they checked out After the funeral, I guess, that day, police searched it 
and found a few interesting things. They found a receipt for a $54.86 purchase from a Twin Cities airport gift shop on the day of the murders. The gift shop clerks said it was for the purchase of a garment bag made at 6.40 a.m. by a man matching Roger Caldwell's description. And if you remember... Velma's car was left at the fucking airport. The parking ticket found in the trash can with her keys was timestamped. I think it was like 6.30, 6.35, something oh. like crazy. So the timeline is it's there so far. After leaving Duluth the day of the funeral, Marjorie and Roger apparently traveled to Twin Cities where they stayed at a Bloomington hotel. Police are aware of this. They are tracking. There, Roger Caldwell collapsed and was taken to hospital where a high level of sedatives were found in his system. And I'm sorry, I'm trying really hard not to, like, smile or laugh, but this bitch is crazy. The sedatives were similar to those found in an unresponsive Elizabeth Congdon three years earlier. So that would make her, what, like, 80? Shut the fuck up. After Marjorie fed her mother a sandwich made with her homemade marmalade... Elizabeth would survive this, um, whatever we want to call it at the moment. The incident wasn't pursued as a crime or it was never investigated because the sandwich that Elizabeth ate was never found after the fact and neither was the marmalade used to make the sandwich. Um... I just, I mean, part of me is like, I don't really understand because they know who made the sandwich. So why don't they? But nothing ever happened from it. But from here, we find out that basically Marjorie had tried to, to speed up her inheritance before. And this probably wasn't the first or the last time she had done it. Yeah, I was about to say, so, like, why not just wait for your mom to die? Because she's already Pretty in old. 80s. But, no, homegirl had been done trying. Like, she was done She waiting. was desperate. And so... Desperado. And so, did the husband... Sorry, I forgot his name. Did he just, like... Ac- Roger. Roger, did he just, like, accidentally put the marmalade on his sandwich and forgot that... I'm thinking... That she wanted to kill him. This bitch is crazy. This bitch is crazy. Because you'll see too, like, she's not. I mean, this isn't her first offense, basically. I I, I guess if I were really crazy enough to want to kill my own adopted mother or like a mother in fucking general, I would want to kill the person that I persuaded to kill her. Because, like, well, we no evidence behind. She had signed over two and a half million dollars to her husband, Roger. So if she's a greedy bitch, she wants that back. If Roger's dead, that money is hers. hers. She doesn't have to give it back. I do it too, girl. I do it too. 
but I would not kill my mother for it. I would wait for her to die. She's already in her 80s. It's stupid. Why would she even sign over the two and a half? I know. And she's sickly. mm, Mm. mm, mm. Mm. This girl. Aside from the actual attempt to take Elizabeth's life, Marjorie and Roger would attempt to speed up their inheritance other ways just by asking for loads of money from... um, Because... So the Congdon family, because of how wealthy their estate was, they, you know, they couldn't just go to Elizabeth to ask for money. They had to go to their family trustees to ask for money. So a month before the murders, Roger Caldwell traveled to Duluth from, I guess, Colorado to meet with the Congdon trustees to ask for $750,000. For what? <laughs> what, what, what is Roger apparently presented the trustees with a bogus doctor's note saying that, I guess they had children, I don't know how many or who they are, I don't care, one of their sons had an illness or something, they had a bogus, he presented the trustees with a bogus doctor's note saying that their son would highly benefit from living on this horse ranch up in Colorado, and they needed the $750,000 to purchase this horse ranch. What in the granola shit? <laughs> <laughs> that is, like, could you imagine going to a bank and being like, sir, I have a doctor's note for this loan. <laughs> but it, it's not even a bank. It's like your personal family trustees. Oh, my God. Yeah. No. I'm sure they're at a bank somewhere, but, like, whatever. He really couldn't take the time to be like, oh, I have this great business idea. It would have been way more... I'm sure they have tried multiple different things even before this. But these are the, like, recent, recent attempts. Oh, my... Ten days before the murders, Roger again would ask for money. This time... Yeah. This time for $250,000... And this, the excuse, was to basically keep him and Marjorie from getting criminal charges against them. For what? Um, I'm not sure for what, but I will get... I Oh, well, maybe it's this. I will get into it in two bullet points. Okay. Basically, my next bullet point is that they didn't receive any of that money, the 750k nor the 250k. Mm-hmm. And then my next bullet point is probably why. And that is because the couple were under investigation for insurance fraud. Yep. <laughs> so that'll do it. That'll do it. Roger had also been known to use bounce checks and fraudulent credit cards. Mm-hmm. Which, you know fraud marjorie was also suspected for being an arsonist just a little little, like cherry on top of you know out of all of the charges for you to say i was not expecting that one yeah she's something in her just was a spark that's a new one yeah Reminds me of, like, the uh, episode of Family Guy where Lois, like, discovers that she loves to steal. 
she like puts a cigarette in her arm. Ah, yeah. But it's just Marge like throwing gasoline on her neighbor's yard. She was suspected for being an arson because she supposedly she supposedly set a few or like multiple fires at one bank that had refused her a loan or multiple loans. Hate that I love her for that. <laughs> There's just something about setting a fire to a bank that my Irish ancestors multiple love. fires. Like oh. it specifically said fires she at a bank. She's not happy with just one. She had to go all the like all way. entrances. Like do, 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 do. <laughs> apparently Marjorie had also been sued several times. Mm. I don't know why. I don't know why or for what, but that is basically the rap sheet summed up. Damn, girl. I thought I was bad. (laughs) And you would think someone growing up in a house like this, like that is not the path that they would go down. But... Now that it's I'm, those spoiled rich kids who now, turn out fucked up, not going to lie. Not all of you, not all of them. Not all, but now that we're getting into the true crime game and doing research on this topic, more of a percentage than you would think. Please check out my previous episode on the murder of Emily. The murder, the, Marquita. um. No, that's, that's the TikTok. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's not it. That is like literally not it. Um, the furthest thing. Um, yeah. If you have- her rich UK boyfriend killed her because he was rich and had everything he ever wanted and needed everything. Yes, I'm so sorry, girl. I do. No, it's okay. Fuck it. Bloop. It's like three episodes ago. The chihuahua on the. Other than Roger and Marjorie's like sketchy rap sheet, there there is actual evidence that pretty much tie them to the crime. Um, okay, so here we go. Good. While Roger Cal- Caldwell was recovering in the hospital after he had collapsed and the sedatives were found in his system, police searched the couple's Bloomington hotel room, in which they found a garment bag. The same one that was purchased at the airport on the receipt that they had found. Thank you. I was missing that connection. Yes. Okay. They also found a small wicker suitcase. (gasps) I do remember that. And 25 pieces of jewelry taken. The ones, the jewelries that were taken from Elizabeth Congdon's bedroom upon her death. Including the watch and ring that she was wearing. Her corpse was wearing, I should say. Marjorie apparently had longed and admired for her mother's jewelry. People, like, knew this, I guess. And so police got word of this. And when asked about this, she claimed that the jewelry they found were not stolen, just instead copies of her mother's jewelry. Like real jeweled copies? I don't know if she claimed... I mean, 
her mother's jewelry was real. And assuming they weren't copies and the real jewelry, they would have been real. So she would have had to claim so they were real copies. Real copy jewels, which is like real gold, real jewels. So you're gonna spend money instead of just waiting to inherit. Yeah, you would not only be spending the price of that jewel, but it's so like, much money. But it's custom because you'd be getting it like right. replica- replicated or whatever. So like, so much uh, money. No. While police were searching the hotel room, they also found a handwritten envelope addressed to Roger Caldwell. Mm. Um, Not only did they find it, (laughs) but it actually arrived to the hotel, apparently, while police were searching the room. So the, like, front desk, hotel, motel clerk handed it to police as they were searching the room. Karma. Yep. The envelope was postmarked from Duluth on the day of the homicides. And inside it was a 1,700-year-old Byzantine Byzantine coin, which was taken from a memorabilia case in Elizabeth Congdon's bedroom. Handwriting experts would conclude that Roger, who had a coin collection, had addressed the envelope to himself. So this would place him in Duluth the day of the murders. And also with property that came from the property of the murders. Hair and blood found near the dead bodies of Velma and Elizabeth were, quote, Consistent with Roger Caldwell's hair and blood type, because remember, we're in the 70s and DNA analysis hasn't advanced as far as it had yet. And um, so for the time, um, it was as close as it could be. So I couldn't get many details on the arrest of Roger and or Marjorie Caldwell, but... They did get arrested at some point. Um, and the defense would argue at trial for Roger that the hair that was left, that they claim was the DNA evidence, was left due to his previous visit at the house. Because, I mean, it's his wife's mother, mm-hmm. you know? But the prosecution would argue that he simply hadn't been in that part of the house during his last visit. And I guess maybe they had proof of that. I'm not sure. Police never found Caldwell's fingerprints in the house, leading investigators to believe that he or whoever used gloves when they intruded. Nine days after the murders, Roger Caldwell was arrested and charged with two counts of attempted murder, first degree. At first, yeah. Okay. I know, right? Like, he completed it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he he actually followed through. I, I guess I'm just confused on that, but go ahead. I mean... Go off. You can charge him with whatever you want. It's all fucked anyways, and it's annoying. Oh, God. Here we go. At first, 
about which this was like two years after the murders okay. roger caldwell was found guilty at his trial in 1978 and was sentenced to two life sentences which seems reasonable you know for two homicides yeah, yeah. the next day marjorie was charged with conspiring to kill her mother and aiding and abiding to murder, mm-hmm. but was never charged with any kind of homicide charges. In her seven, 1979 trial, jurors found her innocent. Do they give a reason why? That's a great question, Kristen. It is said that a reason why that... Maybe some jurors had a certain view of Marjorie or whatever. A a reason why she may have been found innocent was due to her behavior at Roger's trial as well as her own. Um, Because both of their trials, I believe, had had been moved out of state because this was major news not only in Duluth but in Minnesota Mm -hmm. and so both trials were moved out of state I believe but regardless it was still a media frenzy yeah small state big news yeah so of course I guess Marjorie attended Roger's trial Mm -hmm. which happened before her own Mm -hmm. and at her at his trial she was very like She didn't just sit in her corner and mind her business. Let me just say that. Um, At her own trial, I don't know if it was between Rogers and her own or at her own, whatever. She was very chatty and outgoing. She would kind of make the rounds in the courtroom talking to people. She even partied, apparently, with the jurors after her innocent verdict was declared. So that's why they found her not in- innocent? <laughs> what? No, they found her innocent and then they or partied they together. Innoc- they found- but apparently, so, okay, Jim, Joe Kimball, a reporter with the Minneapolis tri- Tribune, Tribune, sorry, who covered the murders, said that Marjorie, quote, was knitting at the defense table she brought a birthday cake in for one of the lawyers one day. It became kind of obvious that the jurors were thinking, boy, I don't think this lady could kill her mother, end quote. So those were, she literally, like, would come in, like, bake a cake for people, bring it in. But so the jurors that, would see that and be like, oh, she's innocent. But isn't that what you would want to do? Exactly. If you were guilty. Exactly. I would bake a cake. Here. Exactly. Taste my delicious But it's cake. laced with marijuana. <laughs> You're going to be fucking stoned at this trial, bitch. Roger Caldwell's three-month trial in 1978 was the longest criminal trial in Minnesota's history at the time. Damn. Yeah. Which is crazy because now we like... It's like the regular... Yeah, it's like super normal. Um, this was just to be topped by Marjorie Caldwell's trial which was three and a half months long in 1979. It was a different time. Always got a one-up, you know? Mm-hmm. At Marjorie's trial, <laughs> interestingly, new evidence or ideas were brought up that would result in Roger Caldwell's convention, conviction being thrown out. The freaking window, the door... 
the vent thrown out the fucking doggy door. Okay, no, stop. Tell me why the fuck that happened. I love the innuendos. Thank you. But <laughs> I was like, I could go on and on and on. And on. What the actual fuck? Girl. So, the new evidence related to the argument that Marjorie's defense made. Basically, police had made mistakes during the initial investigation of the crime scene. Okay. And this is just where they screwed themselves over, to be honest. Um, I think it's, it's not pure luck that Marjorie's defense have this argument, but it's... Oh, well, she has Ugu's, Ugu's bucks. They are going to come through and find the one single detail that they that are is able to That is literally, exploit. like, yeah. yeah, this will actually grant them a lot of stuff. Oh, so, my God. Um, <sighs> basically, the mistakes are followed. Here to follow. Here, the... <laughs> Too many people were allowed access to the crime scene on basically day one. Not only on day one, but during the initial, like, most important hours of the crime scene, which is a huge no-no. Some officers even discarded their, you know, burnt-out cigarette buds into the toilet of the nurse's bathroom where the murderer, intruder... Had cleaned up. So they're just like further contaminating the crime scene. A palm print that was found on uh, what I read was a sink, but I kind of assume maybe it was a bathroom sink, like where that, the bathroom where they were discarding fucking cigarette butts. But who knows? It was at a sink where a palm print was lifted, which turned out to be. The handprint belonging to the lead investigator. And it had to be the lead. It couldn't be anyone but... It just looks bad, my dude. That does look bad. It looks really bad. I'm not trying to shit on investigators because at the end of the day... And I know, it was 1997, but I don't give a fuck. I'm pretty sure they had gloves invented back then. They just learned how to wash their hands. I'm just kidding. No, that was, <laughs> was in the, like, 40s, like 50s. something or other. <laughs> you should remember. Out, check out that one episode. <laughs> it was, no, it's, uh, like, I don't want to make our job easier to shit on y'all, but come on. Just basic, like, here is our designated smoking spot. Put some gloves it should be on literally and, outside the caution tape. Like, they for sure carried handkerchiefs in their fucking pockets. Take it out and pick up whatever, or, like, use it to cover whatever you... They had methods. They weren't stupid. Apparently. I am not discrediting investigators, detectives, police, or whatsoever at that time, but... It's just in this case they were fucking... There are scenarios <laughs> and situations and cases where... And there are mistakes made. So that's all I'll say. So just a few more, like, mistakes, I guess, that were made. A dog, um, I don't think it was a cadaver dog, but it was a a scent dog following Mm -hmm. a scent. It was allowed to jump through the broken basement window where the intruder had supposedly entered. And that can obviously fuck up things, like... The glass that's 
already broken and not broken and whatever. Another piece of evidence that was kind of crucial in Roger's conviction being thrown out was, um, so remember that envelope I mentioned that was addressed to Roger that was sent to the hotel that police Mm -hmm. kind of intercepted from the front desk. So there was a fingerprint on that envelope that police assumed was Roger's, but then in Marjorie's trial, it was introduced that the fingerprint actually did not belong to Roger. It's not said who it was belonged to, or from what I could find, I could not find who it belonged to, but it was not belonging to Roger, apparently. And this was big. This actually, you know, and but part of me is like, but the handwriting expert still said that the handwriting matched Rogers and he addressed it to himself. So I don't know why the fingerprint matters because obviously it probably wasn't his own envelope. Mm-hmm. But it mattered in a way that Roger was granted a mistrial or a retrial. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Roger is granted a, a retrial. But prosecutors don't want to risk going to trial again and Roger being found innocent by the jury. Mm -hmm. So instead of going to trial, they offer him a deal. Roger would take this controversial deal. And um, this was in 1983, so a few years had passed. This deal was a plea bargain. So this involved Roger giving investigators or prosecution two guilty pleas for two counts of second-degree murder and a confession. And for this, he would get no additional prison time for, I guess, what he had already been serving since his additional arrest. Uh, mm. And I'll mention how much time that will be in a few bullet points. So what the fuck was his confession supposed to be worth? Well, investigators were really hoping that with his confession, they'd find out new information. Specifically, they wanted Roger to implicate Marjorie in her mother's death. So they kind of knew that Marjorie maybe didn't physically commit the murders, Mm -hmm. but they knew she had a a huge role to play. She was like the mastermind in it. And they wanted her implication because without hard evidence and at this point for someone to be, um, for someone to be convicted of like those kind of charges, they need the, the least they need, I think is like a witness testimony, but, um, Unfortunately, investigators did or prosecution did not get what they were hoping for with Roger's confession. He did not implicate Marjorie. All he did was confess to breaking into the Glenshane mansion. He he confessed that he was he had no intention to kill and that, you know, the murder of Nurse Velma happened just by accident, not by accident, but that, like, it, you know, he ran into her and just, he had to do what he had to do to basically make her shut up. So we basically made a plea bargain for a guy to confess that he murdered these two people and then we let him off. Basically, because, 
Um, and let me just note that he did say he acted alone in his confession. But, as promised, Roger would serve no additional prison time and he would be released after serving only five years. Yeah, that's a mistrial, miscarriage of justice. What the fuck is going on with this case? I know. Actually. It's actually fucked up. Actually, what the fuck? Because two people have died and why is no one sitting in jail? Or like, shame. Shame. John DeSanto, the assistant St. Louis County attorney who prosecuted the murder cases for the Caldwells, said, quote, I don't think Roger did this alone. I believe he met an accomplice in Duluth that helped him. The purpose was to murder Elizabeth Congdon for the inheritance. They didn't want to kill Velma, but she fought to her death, end quote. DeSanto shared how the case against Roger initially was missing evidence that 100% placed him in Duluth the day of the murders, although police did have that evidence. It just could not be introduced to trial, which was fucking sucky. Apparently, a cab driver picked up a rider at the Greyhound bus depot in downtown Duluth at 11.30 p.m., uh, sorry, between 11.30 p.m. and midnight, the night of the murders. Yeah, because they would need a way to get back from dr- fucking dropping off Elm's car. Or, yeah, like they got there via mm-hmm. bus, and they, yeah. The cab driver followed the rider's instructions and drove the man down London Road five blocks past Glenshane Mansion. Mm-hmm. The cab driver would later identify Roger Caldwell from a physical lineup, like as the rider, obviously. But because apparently the cab driver had seen Roger Caldwell's photo in the newspaper, a judge ruled this as inadmissible in court. That's probably why they ended up taking the cases out of state, too. Yeah. DeSantos also believes that Marjorie was 100% involved, even if she didn't physically commit any of the crimes. A thousand percent. And he also highly believes that a third accomplice is highly, highly possible. Um, Like I said in his previous quote, that he believes that Roger met someone in Duluth to help him. DeSantos also shared how this was, like, the closest thing to a murder contract that he's ever seen. Mm. Unfortunately, you know, like, uh, whatever Roger did was fucked up, but it's still sad that 12 years later he would end up committing suicide. So that may say something to his internal struggles, and and he, he was probably... I mean... Uh, at least it kind of speaks to like at least yeah. he felt sorry for it maybe yeah like he like does yeah. that say he probably was guilty and he like felt really bad yeah i mean who knows it could have it could have been literally, literally could have been in just things. like a lot of debt who knows i mean definitely if you need help reach out to someone because that's not the answer but right damn yeah definitely Aww. some internal struggle there for over something yeah marjorie <laughs> Good old Marge. She would go on to become a serial arsonist. 
She would destroy several homes, apparently in the Twin Cities metro area, as well as in Arizona. Rumor has it, I mean, it's said to believe, to be believed, that she has gotten away with murder at least five times. And that's why I think maybe some of her previous husbands, I didn't look into it, but I'm like, she's probably one of those girls. Oh my god. Yeah. After serving a prison sentence for arson in Arizona, Marjorie is said to be alive and living in Tucson, Arizona, and she should be in, like, her 80s. (laughs) Her sister, who Mm -hmm. was also adopted. I don't know what happened to her. Um, I assume she's probably minding her own business. As she should, because I wouldn't want to be involved either. Marjorie Caldwell was suspected highly, but never convicted of plotting her mother's murder. And as an, you know, a result or the aftermath of this crime, Duluth police procedures did improve. For example, less people are now allowed at crime scenes. Detectives are super careful not to touch anything by placing their hands in their pockets, or wearing gloves. Officers write reports on every lead pursued and interview completed, even if it turns out to go nowhere. Good. Photos, fingerprints, and other evidence are now better documented, whatever that means. The um, So I believe upon Elizabeth's death, I read... I think in her will, she actually left Glenshine Mansion to the University of Minnesota. Regardless, upon her death, it was donated to the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And it was turned into a museum very quickly in 1979. Hmm. The great part is, um, you know, obviously I've never been, but it seems really cool. But if you go, everything in the house... All the memorabilia is in, like, pristine condition. There is a top hat in one of the closets that belonged to Chester Congdon. There are also letters in a desk that Clara Congdon herself wrote. There are sheets in a linen closet that one of the maids folded and organized herself, you know, over 100 years ago. Damn. Unfortunately, after the tragedy in 1977, the Congdon name and the Glensheen Mansion name would be a little bit soured and the museum wouldn't see a lot of customers or a lot of people touring it. And um, I think nowadays it's changed, like they probably get more visitors, but the murders can still keep people away. Glenshine Mansion director Dan Hartman, who says the attraction's grisly history stops some visitors from coming, said, quote, the murders keep some people away. Despite the wealth of historic artifacts and priceless art that festoon the mansion's 39 rooms, we would be getting double the visitor numbers than we get now if they had never happened. Part of me feels like that's the opposite. Yeah. Like, make it a like, haunted mansion. People would love to freaking spend the night there and ghost hunt. I will spend the night there and ghost hunt 
hit us up if you want us to promote. Yeah. <laughs> if you need more customers, just send us right? there. Do like an after hours type of thing. Yeah. Because apparently tour guides are instructed to not talk about the murders. Maybe unless they're asked yeah, about it. But talk about it. Yeah. Like, give the people what they want. Yeah. And just to end it on a fun fact, kind of, mm-hmm. there has been a glinching musical made, which was a or is a blockbuster hit. It is based on the book. So there was a book written first by Jeffrey Hatcher, um, I guess on the Glinching Mansion. I don't know. The musical has music and lyrics by Chan Poling. And just a quote about the musical. Quote, witness this dark musical that tackles the tale with wicked dialogue and evocative music, end quote. And I'm sorry I can't end more on the victims, Velma Paitia and Elizabeth Congdon. Um, there really wasn't a lot about, you know, their personal lives other than kind of whatever I, I said. Um, so I, you know... A musical? Yeah. There's no way that there, those lyrics were... People find art and tragedy. I guess, yeah, with this podcast, what would this <laughs> podcast be about? What but, are we? But we're not ser- singing lyrics, okay? Yeah, we're not writing songs to tragedies. That's too much work. And we're not musically gifted. Mm. Well, say that for yourself, right? Play, Girl? Play Wicked Violin. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, Well, yeah. yeah. I'm totally joking. But not for like 15 years. That story. I just really can't believe that they let that fucking guy go. And then the fucking... And Marjorie just never... Yeah. No, just went off Scott clean. Only to commit more arsons and then like... And go to jail other times. Yeah, she is a re-offender. And it's wild that she never got charged. Um, This was really just all over the place. Maybe if she did get charged, she wouldn't have committed all those arsons afterwards. Yeah, no. I mean, she would have been in jail. Exactly. So. Goddamn. I can't say I've heard of this one before. Neither had I. Shout out to my mom's boyfriend, Tom. Tom. Um, He's from Minnesota, and that's why... He suggested this to me, so thank you. And shout out Minnesota to having somewhat cheaper mansions. Yet. 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 That's what they say. Well, all right, Minnesotans <laughs> and everyone else, it's time to say goodnight. It is late. I'm tired. I'm also yeah, it terrified, is. but that's what happens when you have this kind of show. Well, just um, look at your vents and make sure there's no eyes peeking through. Oh, God, stop. <laughs> and the fucking walls. I hate you. I, oh, no. I meant to tell you. I think there's something living in my Shut wall. Shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear Cora keeps it. scratching at the wall. Okay, that's you to deal with. Me okay. And never find out. All right, guys. Well, until next time, don't ask about the things in the wall because I don't want to fucking know. It terrifies me. But if you want us... If you want to follow us. <laughs> if you want us, we're right here. But if you want to follow us for the latest and greatest, so go ahead and uh, check out our socials, all that good stuff. 
at R A R R at R A R W podcast. And if you're not feeling the topics that we're talking about, send us an email. Tell us the topic you do want us to talk about. Because how are we supposed to know? We can't read minds. Red rum and red wine podcast at gmail.com. And like, comment, subscribe. It always helps our little tiny Literally show subscribe on YouTube, please. Literally subscribe. And then go to Apple. If you're listening right now on Apple, go to Apple. Give us five stars. I love you. Even if you hate us, just give us five stars. <laughs> you made it to the end. Just that's it. If you are listening to this right now and you don't give us five stars, shame. Shame. I love you. <laughs> shame. <laughs> I don't think we can say his name. <laughs>